Hey, Junior here. Thanks for hitting play. What do you do when you're under attack? Oh, you've been there. Being gossiped about, an ex coming after you, business partner stabs you in the back, family relationship collapses. What do you do when you're in that situation and you're under attack? That's what we're talking about right here. My girls love horses, and I had to take them to the horse state of Kentucky. I found a a little cabin far from the city lights out in the rolling hills. I mean, the drive-in was gorgeous. It was winding curves across old rickety bridges over babbling creeks and through the thick hollers. Finally, we reached the property where I had rented a cabin. A broken wooden sign welcomed us up a dirt road. Behind the stained double-wide trailer sitting there, an old lady with a less-than-toothy smile waved us on with her cigarette. Just drive on the grass. Go past the horse graves. Nicole looked at me. She's like, we might be murdered here. (laughs) But I just love Kentucky. And I already put a deposit in anyway. And down the hill from the double-wide stood our cabin. It had a little front porch, a few old beds inside. There was no bathroom inside. We had to walk across the field to the bathroom. And so we carried our, our cooler in. We sat on our, our beds and ate as the Kentucky hills began to grow dark outside. And just as we finished eating, we heard a loud thud on the wall. Our hearts jumped. And then there was a scratching on the window. And maybe Nicole was right. This is it. I slowly peeked out the door. Girls, you got to see this. Come out here. It was eight horses that surrounded our cabin. It was the attack of the horses. The the scratching was one of them rubbing their butt on the wooden planks of of the cabin. And our porch had three huge horse heads sticking inside the the porch. And so we fed them our leftovers from, from dinner. But as fun as it was, my girls had to go to the bathroom, and they stood between us and the bathroom. I stepped off the porch and was immediately surrounded by all the horses, and I tried to push them back to the, to the fence, and I was able to, except for this one horse, kept on shoving me with, with his head and, and nipping at my shoulder. I was trying to wrestle him to the, to the fence. He's about knocking me over. The hillbilly lady in the trailer yells out the window, Oh, he like you. He don't like anyone. He like you. Crazy woman. The horse kept on nipping at me, shoving his head into my chest. Any time I left the cabin, he would, I would run because he would trot over and try to basically tackle me. It's about ready to send him to the glue factory. But we did become, we did become good friends. I think he just wanted to be ridden. Uh, we, we took him on a trail, and he became one of my buddies. He's, he's Derby. But it was a, a big family memory that our family still talks about. The night the horses attacked. Animals can be funny creatures. They can attack. I stepped on a snake last week, and it bit my ankle. It attacked me, and for good reason. A bee stung me in between my toes a couple weeks ago. Uh, Last month, I caught a northern, and it bit my my thumb. I shouldn't have tried to lip it. It bit my thumb. It was bleeding. It was just crazy summer. The attack of a few different animals. Animals can attack, but so can people. We can be funny, stubborn difficult to deal with. People attack. In fact, you've been attacked, haven't you? And maybe you're under attack right now. Oh, not, not physically, but someone's gone after you. You've been a victim of gossip. You've been slandered. Your name has been drugged through the mud a bit. 
Maybe it's a coworker that comes to mind. They're playing politics at work, and in order for them to get what they want, they got to step on you, and they've been coming after you. Or maybe it's an ex. Man, that ex has got it out for you, and they just won't stop. Or it's an old business partner. It's a former friend. It's a Twitter warrior. You got someone, and they've gone after you. I mean, it hurts. It can sure take the mitt out of you. When you're under attack, how do you survive without it getting the best of you? Exodus chapter 17 is where we find ourselves today. Exodus chapter 17, we're just going to look at verses 8 through 16 together. We've been in this book of Exodus this summer. One of our habits as a church is we take a book of the Bible and we slowly walk through it. And so we did that with 1 Corinthians at the beginning of the summer. Now we're in the beginning of the year. Now this summer, we've just decided as a church throughout the summer, let's just go through the book of, of Exodus. And so we've been slowly walking our way uh, through this book. It's an amazing book as in Exodus, God introduces himself to his people. And so it's a, it's a surprising book in that there's a lot of theology that just pours out of this book as God introduces who he is uh, as a God and as a father and as, as a leader. And so we've been, we've been in that. We're going to continue in that. Let me pray, and we'll just jump right in. Father, we thank you so much uh, for your word. I thank you for this book that, that we're studying. And we thank you for who you are. And God... Many of us, most of us, I hope all of us are being reminded just of how great you are and how loving you are. And God, I pray that you, you speak to us tonight. In fact, you will speak to us tonight. I pray that we are able to eliminate all distractions of things that we had going on today, things that we got going on tomorrow and this next week. And God, this is a very special time as we connect with you through your word. And so, Father, corporately, may we eliminate those distractions and hear from you. May your Holy Spirit do a work in our hearts and our minds during this time. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as the lens of Scripture zooms in on Exodus chapter 17, we find ourselves between Egypt and the promised lands, uh, mostly no man's land. It's the place that we left off last week, if you were with us. It's Rephidim. Mount Sinai towers in the distance. The air, dry, stale. Periodic gusts of wind will fling sand into your eyes. The mile-long crowd inches its way through the wasteland, and no one really knows exactly where they're going. But just around the bend, something awaits. And not, not something, someone. It's the roughest, baddest-looking group you've ever seen. It's an army of them. See, they know this wilderness by heart. Every crack in the rock, every cave, it's like the back of their hand. This is their home. This is where they explored as young little boys. This is where they have trained, and this is where they continue to train. And they've been waiting in this spot for this moment. See, these steep canyon walls create this gully that leads out of the valley, and it's this little passage into the valley that hides any sort of dust that's kicked up by the army of trained soldiers of Amalek. And at the right moment, they will pour out of this gully and onto the plain, slaughtering anyone, man, woman, child, who dare step foot on their turf. They are the Amalekites, a tribe of nomads, nicknamed by neighboring countries as the plunderers. They are the Middle Eastern version of pirates, if you will. They have a knack for showing up in towns just as the men had gone off to war. They would show up to loot and rape and kill. These men lying in wait have seen it all. They take as they wish. They kill as sports. And they can't help but smile as this ill-trained people 
dare step foot in their land. This ragtag group of newly freed slaves are untrained in war. They have no idea what is about to hit them with full force just around the bend. So that Rephidim, the Amalekites, came and fought against the Israelites. They know who to attack. The ones in the back, the stragglers, the slow walkers, the weaker, the sick, the very pregnant women who can't walk as fast anymore. It's where the larger carts of luggage are pulled as they bounce along the dusty road. And it's there the Amalekites begin to do what they do best, scare, slaughter, steal. What do you do at this point? We've called them, we've called them the nation of Israel, but that term is pretty generous. They have no government. Well, I mean, they have Moses, and they have God in the cloud that is leading them, but there's no form of government. There's no military. There's no training. They haven't talked through this. They, they don't do drills. I mean, sure, the heading in your Bible will say the battle, but at this point, it's a massacre. What do you do? You felt this. You're going throughout your life, maybe even trying to follow God, and you're trucking along, you know, trying, trying to reach your goals, and then you're blindsided by somebody. Your partner turns on you. Your friend throws you under the bus. Your spouse runs off. Your critics start chirping. Your coworker is soiling your name. And as you're driving by yourself, you're thinking, what did I do? What can I do? So you know that feeling. It's not a great feeling. Amplify that. Moses stands there rubbing a little bit of dust out of his eye from a recent gust of wind. The sound of blood-curdling screams echo off the canyon walls as everybody turns and gasps. Send your most able-bodied men to the back. Grab whatever looks like a weapon. Report back to me. With each passing second, Moses' heart picks up pace. The worst of his assumptions are realized as the nation begins to scatter and run. They're under attack. And now Moses faces another monumental challenge to his leadership. How do you survive this? How do you get through this? In the same way, how can you and I, how can we be attacked today, yet wake up tomorrow and still go after what God has for us? Because it's this stuff right here. Come on, let's just, let's just be honest. It's this stuff right here that halts the majority. It's this stuff right here that has halted us before. We're just too scared to continue forward because every time we make some progress, we get someone coming after us. But notice in this text, though, this is not explicit in the text. This is more implicit. But notice here, Moses isn't surprised. You see that? Like nowhere do, do we read, you know, Moses said, what? Come on, God, what's this? We were expecting a flight with no turbulence. What's this? It's not in here at all. Moses was expecting something to happen. And that, that is worth noting. When you're attacked, when a partner stabs you in the back, when an ex comes after you, when a friend throws you under the bus, when you're attacked, expect it. Expect it. Now, I'm not, I'm not listen, I'm not saying live your life and trust nobody. You know, I'm not saying, you know, always be looking over your shoulder. I'm not saying that at all. We shouldn't live paranoid. That's a terrible way to live. But you should expect some turbulence in your wasteland. Opposition in general shouldn't catch you by surprise. You're going to be attacked. It's life. Jesus told his followers, expect you're going to be hated. I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Know that when they hate you, they hated me first. There is an enemy. And that enemy seeks to kill and destroy. He will go after you, especially if you're advancing. If you're doing anything worthwhile, you're going to get attacked. So expect it. 
See, Moses here expected something like this was going to happen. Oh, he was hoping that it wouldn't, but he was expecting that it would. And that led to a quick decision, quick delegation, and a calculated response. It was expected. When attacked, expect it. You're going to get attacked. It's warm, fuzzy thoughts here at the bridge, but it's just true. It's a nightmare of a scene. The confusion, terror. The people scatter throughout the wilderness. The, the women grab their crying children. Men grab weapons, tools, rocks, whatever they can find. It's still just a massacre at this point. And Moses' response is quick and it's calculated. Verse 9. So Moses said to Joshua, choose some men and go and fight the Amalekites tomorrow. I will stand at the top of the hill and watch you. I will be holding the walking stick that God gave me. Something we got to remember. Moses is in his 80s at this point. Okay, so we can look at this and be like, really, Moses, you're going to grab a stick and like run away? He's in his 80s. It's not like he's going to grab a weapon and hobble at some trained assassins. Instead, he's going to do what every good leader does. He's going to figure out a plan and then delegate. And it's at this moment that we are introduced to Joshua. He's a young guy. He weighs a few more pounds than when he got married. Long hair, gray, poking through his beard and the sides of his head. Crooked nose, tattoos everywhere. You know, the young, cool-looking kind of leader-type guy. Just trying to paint the picture here. He will be a great hero. His name, too, will live on as one of the greats. It's Joshua in the Battle of Jericho. Joshua will tell the son to stand still. Joshua will get a book named after him in the Bible. But right now, he's just some young green kid. And you can see the fear in his eyes. This is his first time. Oh, there will be many more times. As those eyes grow older, they will grow more confident. But he hasn't seen battle yet. Having been given orders from his leader, he doesn't complain. Yeah, you go up on the top of the hill, old man, take credit for this one. There's none of that. Now he stares at an army filing out of the valley. He gulps and grips his sword tighter. And Moses writes, and Joshua obeyed Moses in verse 10. I want to just stop right here because this is really interesting. Moses didn't need to write this phrase. If you have your Bibles in front of you, which I hope you do, in verse 10, this phrase is actually, it's unnecessary really to the structure of the sentence. The rest of the verse could stand independent of it. Moses could have just wrote, Joshua went to fight the Amalekites the next day. Obeyed Moses isn't necessary for this, for this sentence structure. Moses is very intentional with including this seemingly unnecessary phrase right here. Joshua obeyed. Why? Because when we're under attack, when you're being gossiped about, when someone's coming after you, obedience becomes less of a priority. After all, now you got an excuse. Well, I'm under attack. You can't expect me not to gossip. They're gossiping about me. You can't expect me not to have an attitude. Look what I'm dealing with. You can't expect me to be faithful. They're not being faithful to me. And you can't expect me to not be unkind. You can't blame me for being unkind. I'm being mistreated here. No, 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 no. There's no excuse. This is why Moses includes this phrase here. It's here for a reason. Obedience under attack. Moses wanted to include this for that reason. Obedience is important under attack. When you're under attack, recommit to obedience. Recommit to obedience. You're being gossiped about. Someone's coming after you. Recommit right there. I'm going to obey. Now, I know you want to obey. You're committed to obedience. The spirit is willing. But when you're under attack, recommit. Because now the obedience is put to the test. Now it's going to be harder. Now it's really going to matter. And now you got an excuse not to. And now it's going to hurt to do it. 
You think about it. As Joshua stands there staring down an enemy, he's got more than a few excuses. Moses brought us out here. This is on him. And now he's just going to walk up the hill? No. I'm going to take these ill-trained men into battle? Like if we were in Joshua's sandals at this point, most of us would do this half-heartedly at best, if not run off. When you're under attack, obedience is a heck of a lot harder. You're under the gun. And you know the feeling, right? Your stomach is in knots. You're not sleeping well. Your mind is racing. You're feeling this pressure. And it's in that moment, there's something powerful about, no, I'm recommitting right now to obedience. God, I commit to doing what's right here. Come hell or high water, I'm taking the high road. I'll take this on the chin if I have to. If it costs me, I'll do it. But God, I want to keep my head held high. I'm going to do the right thing. And I'm going to trust that you're with me. There's something about that posture that clears your head and it brings stability to your spirit. Because right now, there's a lot of things I can't control. Can't control what's being said about me. Can't control what they're doing. I can't control whether they're going to stop or not. But I can control my response and I can control my obedience. And so I'm just going to focus on that. See, when attacked, and you will be, recommit to obedience. It's the first thing. Some of us have got to understand it's not about defeating our attackers. It's about doing what's right. But our first reaction, come on, this is my first reaction, is I gotta gotta shut them up. I gotta control the narrative here. I gotta give them a taste of their own medicine. I gotta blast them back on social media. I gotta fire back with gossip and I gotta go after their character too. And I gotta recruit more people to come on my side. Just because you're being attacked does not mean you now have a free pass to stooping down to their level. When under attack, the marching orders remain the same. No, I'm going to obey here too. I got to say, just to be candid with you, sometimes preaching sucks because God can put me through the very thing I'm teaching. Like uh, a while back, no joke, I I sat down to study this passage, study this message, and uh, the next day, after I'm studying all this, coming up with an outline and all that, the next day, I get a phone call that someone had something against me. They were were saying some stuff. It was completely out of left field. It was out of the blue. I have no idea even who that person is. So I get off this phone call, and I'm studying this passage. It's like, well, shoot. Should have preached on how to handle great riches this week. But I felt attacked, and it, it hurt. And I'm the type, when, I, when I'm hurting, I crawl into myself in those moments, and I'm very distant from people. And for 24 hours, that, that, that was me. My, my family felt it. I was just very distant with them. I was very preoccupied. Um, I had a short fuse, and I was just living in my head. I didn't handle it very well until the Holy Spirit convicted me of this one right here. And it shook me out of my pity party. Like, okay, what does obedience look like right here? Well, it looks like getting into God's word, and it looks like surrendering my mind to God, and it looks like praying blessings over that person who's attacking me, and it looks like serving my family, and it looks like enjoying my wife. And I hadn't been doing any of that. Instead, I was just feeling sorry for myself and living in my head and having a pity party. There was a moment where I really needed to recommit to obedience. It was this that allowed me to just draw out of myself and closer to God, and it changed the feel. Oh, it still hurt. But it cleared my head a bit. There's something about obedience that really grounds you. There's something about going into work and deciding, I'm going to love that coworker, even though, even though they got it out for me. I'm just going to respond in love. 
There's something about being good to your ex, even though they're mistreating and slandering you to your child. And there's something about living above that and not retaliating back. And there's something about speaking blessings over that person who does nothing but curse you. And there's something about getting on your knees and laying it before God when you'd rather just handle it yourself. There's something about obeying Jesus and praying blessings over those that curse you. There's something about obedience under attack. It brings clarity to the situation, and it simplifies a complicated feeling. So you can imagine Joshua's head is swimming at this point. The army that he stares at strikes his paralyzing fear deep into his chest. His mind is spiraling. But Moses said, but Joshua obeyed. At the same time as Joshua was going out to fight, Moses and Aaron and Hur went to the top of the hill. <laughs> I love this verse because I just like to picture this, okay? Moses is in his 80s. Aaron is Moses' older brother. So Aaron is mid-80s maybe. According to the historian Josephus, Hur right here, Hur married Miriam, which would be Moses and Aaron's older brother. So unless Miriam is some sort of smooth cougar, her has got to be around 90 years old. Are you getting this picture? Three geriatric brothers are walking up a hill. There's a lot of grunting going on here. Moses stands that, or Joshua stands at the bottom going, when are those guys going to get up there? Finally, they reach the top. Moses, trying to catch his breath, turns around and looks and his people who are under attack, the screaming, the clanging of metal, it's, it's more muffled up here, but he doesn't feel far from them. His heart breaks for his people who are being terrorized. It's still a massacre at this point. Anytime Moses held his hands in the air, the men of Israel would start winning the fight. Now, here's my question as we look at this. Why would Moses put his hands in the air? Like nowhere in here does it say like God told him to put your hands in the air. Moses is not instructed to do this. Why is Moses putting his hands in the air? Well, we're in chapter 17, and for 17 chapters, Moses has been learning something. Every time I have a problem, I go straight to God. Every time I get a problem, I go straight to God. The plagues had to go to God. The crossing of the Red Sea had to go to God. Nation gets hungry, had to go to God. Nation gets thirsty, had to go to God. I got to go to God. And Moses is learning something that many of us have yet to learn. Got a problem? Straight to God. So old Moses, standing on the edge of the summit, the breeze whipping through his beard and his hair, his robe is flapping in the wind, squints as he looks down on his people being attacked. He does something that he has learned for 17 chapters. I'm just going to take it to God. And this is how he does it. Arms stretched forth. It's always been a sign of surrender to God, a call to God. Just as a child runs to their parent with their arms up, wanting daddy, so Moses stands there with his arms to the Father. David wrote in Psalm 141, let the lifting of my hands come to you as the evening sacrifice. This is our posture of worship. It's surrender to the Father. I'll stand with arms high and heart abandoned. It's a symbol of I need God. I need you, God. And Moses is teaching it to us right here. But when Moses put his hands down, the men of Israel began to lose the fight. I, I wish I could have been there to see how Moses figured this out. You know, he's like, hey, all right, let's go, let's go, let's go back down. <laughs> I just wish I could have seen him. How did he figure that out? 
And you ever hold your arms up for a really long time? I tried to do this at, at uh, camp. It's like a survivor theme um, at, at our camps this summer. And one of the interns, I, I oversee like the, the high school interns, and they were telling me that um, apparently on the Survivor show, which I guess is still going on, on the Survivor show they had this competition where you had to hold your arms in the air. And uh, I think the longest person who did it on the show that episode was like eight hours or something like that. So I was like, well, I'm, I'm going to try this. It's like minutes in, I was like, no, I'm not going to do this. And I'm not 80 years old. Like already tired from the hike, his arms are shaking, his fingers tingle. He winces as he loses some feeling in his arms. Quickly, his brother and brother-in-law step up to his side. So they put a rock under Moses for him to sit on. And Aaron and Hur held, <laughs> again, just three geriatric brothers. And Aaron and Hur held Moses' hands in the air. Aaron was on one side of Moses and Hur was on the other side. They held his hands up like this until the sun went down. Three old guys up there on the hill, one sitting on a rock, the other on each side, keeping his hands up in the air. I mean, at this age, this right here is just as difficult as what's happening below in the battle. And it is a lesson that Moses screams from the mountain. This right here. Worship through it. When you're attacked, worship through it. I don't know who originally said it, but when you stop worshiping, you stop winning. And some of you have stopped worshiping. I don't know why, but you, you stopped. You were made to worship. You were made to give control over to your creator. You were made to surrender him, to him. The problem is, is when we're under attack, we feel like we got to take control. I got to control the narrative. I got to control the counterattack. I got to control how this ends. We got to take control. Moses hikes up a mountain to just give up control. Hands in the air. I need you, God. We need you. We can do nothing. We're, we're going to lose. You, I am nothing. You are everything. This is the last thing you want to do when you're attacked. It's the best thing for you. Some of the best worship songs in Scripture were written by David while he was under attack from King Saul. The night that Jesus was betrayed and attacked, Scripture says that he was singing hymns after dinner. Likely the moment that Judas was betraying, Jesus was singing. Martyrs throughout history, like uh, John Huss, as they were being burned at the stake, sang out hymns through the flames. When our brothers and sisters in China and Sudan, when they are raided, they are attacked, they sing out and worship. Attack us. We'll just worship right through it. Worship through it. See, I know when you're being slandered, when you're getting cut up, your reputation, your character are being assaulted. The last thing you want to do is lift your hands and sing out. But this is the way of a follower of Jesus. This is just what we do. It's the best thing for us. One of my favorite worship songs is by, is by Hillsong. It's a song called Even When It Hurts. If you've never heard this song, you should look it up. Let me just show you a few of these lyrics. It says, even when the fight seems lost, I'll praise you. Even when it hurts like hell, I'll praise you. Even when it makes no sense to sing louder, then I'll sing your praise. And it's this posture it's this tenacity, it's this heart that Moses has as he extends his arms over the valley. There's terror below, there's tears below, there's bloodshed below. The enemy is celebrating, and the fight seemed lost the moment that it began. Moses is exhausted. Joshua's clawing his way through battle, yet Moses worships. Don't stop 
worshiping. When you're down and out, when someone's got your number and the attack begins, worship. You go to God right away. Arms out as a child reaching for their dad. We need you. I need you. This is what we do. So there they are, the sun beginning to set. Moses and Aaron and Hur stand shoulder to shoulder to keep Moses' arms up in the air as the battle rages below. Verse 13, so Joshua and his men defeated the Amalekites in battle. Then look at the next verse, verse 14. This is a very curious verse. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, write about this battle. Write, write these things in a book so that people will remember what happened here. Now, this is curious to me because this is the first time in Scripture that God tells Moses to write something down, which is funny. He didn't tell him to write about the plagues. He didn't tell him to write about the crossing of the Red Sea. This is the first time in Scripture God says, I want you to be, be careful to, to write this down. I want, I want you to remember this. Why? There's a debate about the why, but my favorite, and I'm sticking to it, the reason that God was so adamant about recording this was because God wants generations, God wants us to know God fights for his people. It's perfectly summed up in Zechariah 2.8. I love this. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Oh, man, God cares. See, nothing gets me more angry than seeing my children get bullied. I'm pretty easygoing, but if my kids are being messed with, gloves are coming off because those are my kids. Those are the apple of my eye. Nobody messes with my kids. And I'm not the perfect father. I'm far from it. How much more does the perfect father hate seeing you be attacked, you being mistreated, you being maligned? He cares. Justice is mine, says God. He who touches you touches the apple of his eye. And I know that might be hard to believe. I see it on the prayer request. There's plenty in this church getting attacked. Ex coming after you, custody battles and business partners. There's a lot of us under attack. And maybe it feels like God isn't doing anything. I would just say feelings don't reflect reality. But may I also ask, are you walking in obedience, though? At every turn. Are your arms outstretched, constantly surrendering control over to the Father and worshiping through the hurt? Because that's what we're called to do, is obey and surrender to the Father and worship. And we trust God will fight, maybe not in our timing and maybe not the way we want. But God tells Moses, I want you to write this down. I want them to know I fight for my kids. They're the apple of my eye. I fight. Studies overwhelmingly show that uh, Christians lead the most attacked people group worldwide. Uh, churches being the focus of those attacks uh, might seem wrong because we don't really necessarily see it in the States. But if you were to go to many parts of the world, to be a Christian is to put a target on your head. It's what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 3.12. He writes, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not long ago, two churches in Egypt were bombed. Hours after the bombing, the blood still stained the walls. The church, hours later, filled back up with people to worship. Pastor George got up at the pulpit and gave a three-part sermon called, To Those Who Attack Us. Point number one, thank you. You help us share in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. 
Point number two, we love you. Even criminals love those who love them. Followers of Jesus, we love those who attack us. And point number three, we're praying for you. We are praying blessings right now for those who curse us and want us dead. An interview with a Christian woman in Iran was recently published. Because of her label as a Christian girl in town, she is the continual victim of rape and beatings. And it is a loud, even encouraged. Rape the Christian girl in town until she is raped into submission. It's sick. In this interview, when she asked how she deals with this, she said, and I quote, I've made the decision to see my body as a living sacrifice. That's how I deal with it. Come, Lord Jesus. It's the posture of believers. Gonna get attacked. Expect it. Bring it. We'll walk in obedience at every turn with our arms outstretched, worshiping through that pain. Even when it hurts like hell, we'll praise you because that is just what we do. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, would you give it a share? It goes a long way. Also, don't forget to subscribe if you haven't yet. Hey, God has something for you today. Go after it. Blessings. Blessings.